Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now attempting to cover Acts 5, verse 27 through 42, the end of the chapter. Our context is this, Peter and the other apostles have been preaching openly in the temple complex after they had been arrested, as we saw in chapter 4 of Acts, they had been arrested... The Sanhedrin said, go out of here, don't teach anymore, don't preach in the name of Jesus. And the apostles said, ah, well, you know, you can tell us all you want, but we're going to do it. And they did it. And then pretty soon there's a healing ministry going on. They met at Solomon's porch, and people were getting saved, getting healed and saved so fast that many people were getting added to the church, both men and women, and then people were bringing their sick so that even Peter's shadow would follow them. And the whole place was in an uproar, and then people started coming in from the outlying towns into Jerusalem so they could get around the apostles and their miracle-working power. So the Sanhedrin arrested them in the first part of chapter 5, verses 1 through 26, they arrested them, put them in jail, getting ready to interview them, uh, interrogate them the next day. And then an angel came and let them out of jail. And so they were flummoxed, baffled at why they were out there preaching the next morning instead of being in jail. So they sent the temple commander and the temple police to pick up the apostles. And they didn't arrest them. They were scared of the people, scared they might get stoned by the people. And so they arrested the apostles and said, how about come to the Sanhedrin? We want to interrogate you. And the apostles graciously decided, yeah, we'll go. We'll go. They didn't resist. So that's where we are here in verse 27 and 28 in Acts chapter 5. After they, the temple police, brought them, the apostles, in into the Sanhedrin, and they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, when did they strictly order the apostles not to teach in his name? That was in the last chapter, verse 17, Acts 4, 17. However, so this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. And that's what they did. Didn't do any good. They decided to obey God rather than man. Spread the teaching. It was everywhere, spreading like wildfire. Now, you notice that the high priest here, he is concerned that Jesus' blood was going to be brought upon his and the other Jewish leader's head. He's referring to the historical fact that he and some of his fellow Jewish leaders had actually killed Jesus. Let's read that. Acts 2.23, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. That's Peter's Pentecostal sermon. He said, you, being you Jewish leaders, killed him. You used lawless people, the Romans, to nail him on a cross. Acts 3.13-15, You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, we are witness of this. Acts 4, 10, and 11. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, and whom God raised again from the dead, etc., etc. And of course, this, fa this famous verse in Matthew 27, verse 25, all the people answered, that's Pontius, they answered Pontius Pilate, no, we don't want Barabbas. His blood be on us and all our children. Kill Jesus. And that was a terrible thing to say because that's exactly what happened. Jesus' blood was on the Jewish leaders and their children, the first generation, which was wiped out in AD 70 when the Romans condignly punished Israel for their murdering of the Messiah. Now, I've got to point out here that this is some of the Jews and some of the Jewish leaders killed Jesus, not all Jews. There's no room for blood guilt on the whole Jewish race, as unfortunately occurred in the Middle Ages. In Europe, Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. There was no blood guilt curse put on their heads, obviously. 
It was only that wicked generation of Jews that Jesus constantly cursed. Woe on you. And at Matthew 23, he's not talking about all Jews all the time. Who was the high priest that was worried about Jesus' blood being on his head? Well, people debate that. It could either be Annas or Caiaphas. I don't know. doesn't really matter. Notice that the high priest doesn't even mention Jesus' name. He says, this man's. This is very common when the Jewish opponents of Jesus mention Jesus. They couldn't even mention his name. They were so upset with him. So wanting to denigrate Jesus' name and his honor. One minor point before we move on about this from this passage. There's a phrase here. It's a Hebrewism. Didn't we strictly order? Translated from the Greek into English by Adam Clark. The phrase is this, with commanding, did we not command you? Which is a Hebrewism, a funny way of saying something according to the way the Hebrews did it. And Clark makes the point that this shows the accuracy of Luke. Here we have a Gentile writer quoting precisely a Hebrewism, which Luke would not have done if he were merely paraphrasing here. And of course, Luke is noted for his extreme attention to detail, historical detail, especially when he gets to that sailing part where, where Paul sails to Rome. So Luke is a very, very good historical writer, Acts 5.29. But Peter and the apostles replied, replied to the high priest, we must obey God rather than men. Now this was a gutsy thing for the apostles to say. The Sanhedrin had all the power. However, the apostles knew that the people were behind them, and the Sanhedrin knew that too. So they weren't really being reckless. They were being courageous, but they weren't being foolish or rash. They also knew that God was behind them. And they repeat what they had already told the Sanhedrin during the first interrogation in Acts chapter 4, verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, answered the Sanhedrin, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. So, in other words, we're going to keep right on preaching. This reminds me of an incident when I was in college. I was, what, 19, 20 years old, and I went to this party that was sponsored by students at a particular Bible college that was near my university. And there was a girl there, and she was kind of real spiritual. You know, she was real spiritual. She was too spiritual. And she got on me about you got to obey the authorities at all time, Romans 13. And I said, yeah, but what about Brother Andrew and all these people that go behind the Iron Curtain and go behind in communist countries and they disobey the law to preach the gospel? She said, I don't care. You got to obey the authorities. And I remember thinking, that doesn't make any sense. And I never dreamed that decades later I would be in communist China disobeying the government every chance I got to tell people about Jesus. I don't feel bad about doing it. And if I'd have known the Bible better when I was 20, I would have told that young spiritual woman, hey, are you telling me that Peter and the apostles disobeyed the scripture when they told the Sanhedrin we must obey God rather than men? Governments have authority to, to capture and punish rapists and thieves and murderers, etc. They do not have the authority to tell people not to preach the gospel of Christ. Authority has its limits. I remember a husband has authority over his wife, but a husband cannot tell his wife not to preach the gospel or not to pray. I think of Jean Guillaume's famous autobiography, Madame Guillaume, published by Moody Press, even though she was a Catholic. And her husband would look at her and say, you're not going to pray to God. And she said, oh, yes, I Well, she didn't say it out loud, but she she did it anyway. She kept her eyes open looking at the trees, I think it was, and while she's praying in her heart while the husband's staring at her. Nobody that has God-given authority can overstep that authority to create injustice. And so this verse is a great verse to prove that important point. Acts 5, verse 30. 
Peter continues. And notice Peter is still the spokesman for the apostles. He's the leader. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, Peter continues, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. Murdered? The apostles continue right on with their previous accusations of blood guilt. That was really bothering the Sadducees. They had a guilty conscience. They knew they had killed an innocent man. And, they, and he did this right after the Sanhedrin vehemently objected. They said, you're trying to bring this man's blood on our head. And Peter said, yeah, you murdered him. <laughs> they didn't back down one inch. And not only did you murder him, you hung him on a tree, which is the most extreme, horrible sort of murder, a shameful murder and painful murder. And Peter says the God of our fathers. He again identifies himself with the Jewish race. He's not trying to say that Christianity is an alien religion to the Jews. He said this comes right in the context of Judaism. The same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the same God that raised up Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, whom you killed, whom you murdered. Now, Peter says that the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, raised up is a little ambig ambig ambiguous. John Gill says that it means... God raised up Jesus to the work and office of Savior. I don't agree with that. I think that it means that God the Father raised up Jesus in the resurrection because that's a perfect contrast with the word murdered in the second half of the verse. God resurrects, you murdered. I think Gil is way off base there. Once again, the point about Peter appealing to the God of our fathers, he not only wanted to show that Jesus was a Jew, and a fulfillment of the Jewish religion. He also wanted to show that they were not out there preaching some strange God, some pagan alien God. That was very important to these uptight Jewish religious leaders. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. God exalted this man. This man, you see, Peter might be mimicking or mocking the words that the high priest used when he said, you brought this man's blood on our head. And Peter says, this man, God exalted this man. Talking about Jesus, of course. God exalted this man to his right hand, the hand of power and authority, as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Now, the Jews expected the Messiah as a ruler, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out. And Peter said, yeah, he's a ruler. He's a ruler, all right. But he's also a savior. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that the Jews had completely lost sight of the need of a Messiah as savior. All they could think about was that political power. And we're going to kick the Romans out of our lives. Acts 5 verse 32. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now this fulfills other scripture that Jesus spoke. John 15 verses 26 through 27. When the counselor comes, this is Jesus speaking, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, that's the promise of the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. John 16, 8-11, when he comes, that's the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So the Holy Spirit's going to do his work in converting people to Christ. Now, notice that Peter says we are witnesses of these things. Now, you can take witnesses in two different senses. You can say we are witnesses of something, something in the sense of we saw it. Or you can say we're a witness like we're a witness at a trial and we testify about what we've seen. Well, in this case, it's both. They saw, they lived with Jesus, they saw everything Jesus did, and then they went out and told about it. So they were verbal witnesses. They were not just passive witnesses, just seeing something and recording it in their brains. They were active witnesses. They received it, they saw it, it went into their brains, and then it went out of their mouths as they testified about Jesus. And so is the Holy Spirit a witness, just like the apostles.
How is the Holy Spirit a witness? Well, John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out the miraculous gifts and works and power of the Holy Spirit, which, of course, was testifying to the gospel. That's why so many people were believing. Adam Clark adds the gift of tongues that fell at Pentecost. So all of these things were witnesses that the Holy Spirit used so that people might obey him. The Holy Spirit was given whom God has given to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit was not given promiscuously. It's you got to obey Jesus. you got to bow down, bend your knee, confess your sins, get regenerated, get filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's a gift. God gives it to you, not because of your works, but because it was given to you as a gift. Acts five thirty three through 34. When they heard this, that's the Sanhedrin, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Man, they, call, they got called murderers again. <laughs> 34, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. So the apostles are outside, as Gamaliel says his his thing here. And, of course, the next question is, is how does Luke know what happened on the inside of the Sanhedrin? Somebody must have leaked it. That doesn't surprise me with all those people there. Now, how could the Sanhedrin kill the apostles? They wanted to kill them. How could they actually do it? Well, they couldn't do it judicially. The Romans didn't give them jurisdiction over capital cases. They could have done it privately and secretly, hired some assassins to go out and kill them. They could have, as John Gill says, they could have stirred up zealots against them, called them blasphemers and heretics, and let the zealots do the assassination. Maybe they didn't think that far. Maybe they were just so angry they wanted to kill them and choke them around the neck. They didn't think about how they were going to do it practically, but they, just, they were just filled with demonic rage. But there was one Pharisee in the Sanhedrin named Gamaliel, and this man said, look, he stood up and he said, let's don't have a kangaroo court here. Let's don't have a lynch mob. Let's don't have a witch hunt. Let's look at things judiciously and wait and see whether Jesus is from God or not. Now this Gamaliel, who is called a teacher of the law and who was respected by all the people here in this verse, let's look at some of his history. Who was he? I'm going to read you some descriptions of this man. From some commentaries, John Gill says he was the son of Rabban Simeon, the son of Hillel the Great, the famous Hillel. Remember the two schools in Jerusalem, Hillel, the liberal school in Shammai, the conservative school. Well, Simeon was the son of Hillel, and Simeon was, was Gamaliel's father. This Simeon is by some thought to be the same that took Christ in, into his arms in Luke 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. That's speculation. And this Gamaliel was also the master of the apostle Paul, Acts 22.3. He continued, Paul continued, I am a Jewish man born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law. So Gamaliel was Paul's teacher later on, interestingly enough. Assuming it's the same guy, and I, I think it was. Let's see, Look, Gil goes on about Gamaliel. He is called commonly Gamaliel the Elder because he lived to a great age. He died 18 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, that was AD 70, and was had in veneration to the last. It is said of him that he ordered before his death that they should carry him to his grave in linen, for before this time they used to carry out the dead in silk. And this was more grievous to his relations than his death itself, because they thought he was not interred honorably enough. And it is also reported that Onkelos, the proselyte, at his death burnt as much for him in goods and spices as came to 70 Tyrian pounds. He was also commonly called by the name of Rabban, which was a more honorable title than that of Rabbi or Rab. Rabbi or Rab. And his father Simeon was the first that had it, had that title, Rabban. 
And he was now, Gamaliel was now president of the Sanhedrin. This is what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says about this Gamaliel. Rabban Gamaliel I, commonly by way of distinction called Rabban Gamaliel the Elder. He was president of the council after the, de- after the death of his own father, Rabban Simeon, who was the son of Hillel. He was St. Paul's master and the 35th receiver of the traditions, and on this account might be improperly, improperly termed a doctor of the law, because he was one that kept and handed down the Kabbalah received from Mount Sinai, the secret oral traditions. That's kind of ironic. He was a Pharisee in charge of maintaining all those stupid oral traditions that, that Jesus spent most of his ministry denouncing. He, Gamaliel, died 18 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, his son Simeon succeeding him in the chair, who perished in the ruins of the city. Though probably no favor of Christianity, yet for a Pharisee he seems to have possessed a more liberal mind than most of his brethren. Brethren, the following advice was at once humane, sensible, candid, and enlightened. So, did he become a Christian? Probably not. In fact, somewhere, I don't have it in front of me, somewhere it is said that he lifted up a prayer against the Christians right before his death. I think John Gill points that out somewhere. I don't have it in front of me. I'm going from memory. Now, Gamaliel Gamaliel is said to be a respected teacher or doctor of the law. King James has doctor. Other translations have teacher of the law. He had to be respected in order for the Sanhedrin to hold off from going after the apostles. They were enraged, wanted to kill the apostles of the Sanhedrin, and, the guy, and this guy stood up. If he had not been so respected, he would not have been able to stop the lynch mob from nailing the apostles. This, again, is in the providence of God. Why did Gamaliel send the apostles outside? He didn't want the apostles to get any encouragement by what he had to say. This is John Gill's idea, and I think he's probably right. Now, these Sanhedrin Jewish leaders were enraged, the literal meaning there is they were sawn through. They were really cut to the quick with remorse, as Adam Clark points out. And that, look, notice how different their reaction was from the first converts in Acts 2.37. The first converts who heard Peter's Pentecostal sermon in which he called everybody murderers who killed the Lord of glory. When, when they, the people, heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, brothers, what must we do? In other words, how do we get saved? They had a proper reaction, earned them a ticket to heaven. The Sanhedrin had an improper reaction, earned them a ticket to hell. Acts 5:35-36. He said to them, Men of Israel, be careful about what you're going to do to these men. This is Gamaliel talking to the Sanhedrin. Not long ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his partisans were dispersed and came to nothing. And now Gamaliel is going to propose a pragmatic test. Hey, if this message that's being preached is from God, it's going to succeed. If it's not going to preach from God, it won't succeed. Now, you got to be careful. I've, I remember reading an article about this one time. If you use that criterion to decide whether something's from God or not, well, then Mormonism would be from God, and it's not. How about Islam? Oh, it's booming. This, this is not a universal principle to be used. Whether something's true or not is whether it conforms to the revealed Word of God and the words of the apostles is not how successful it is, and not to mention the fact there's a lot of stuff in Christianity that very that very few Christians hold to. It's as true as it can be. So you can't go. You, it, truth is not a democracy. It's not a result of number counting. But at any rate, this is what Gamaliel is saying that it might be we don't have to get ourselves in a mess here by executing people and getting and then getting the people all upset. It might be they're just going to die on their own or do something stupid on their own. We can take care of them. So that's what he's going after. Who is this Thutis that he mentions? 
where there's some options. One option is we know nothing of him from any other th historical source. That's probably the truth. There was a Thutis named by Josephus. John Gill mentions that, but James Fawcett denies that's Thutis because that was the wrong time. That was later on in the time of wars and rumors of wars and false prophets and all leading up to the, and uh, as Jesus talked about in all of that discourse, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Could be that one. Origen mentions the Thutis. Nobody knows who he was. Doesn't matter. He was somebody that had 400 people and didn't make it. And so, and so, and this really does make a lot of sense. If the thing is, see, if it doesn't make it, then it's not of God. If it does make it, it could be of God. Yes or no, we'll have to decide. But if it doesn't make, if it if it fails numbers wise, well, then it's obviously it's not from God. Acts 5:37. After this man, this is Simeon. Excuse me. This is Gamaliel continuing before the Sanhedrin. After this man, after Thutis, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. That man also perished, and all his partisans were scattered. Now this Judas is mentioned by Josephus and cited by the NIV Study Bible. This Judas refers to Judas the Galilean, a man who refused to give tribute to Caesar. His revolt was crushed, but his movement lived on. And it may, in fact, still have existed in Jesus' time in the party of the Zealots. But anyway, he died and was scattered, so another failure. The census, by the way, is not the first census of Quirinius mentioned in Luke 2.2 when Jesus was born and his mother and father went down to Bethlehem to get him registered, according to the census. It's rather the census in 86, about 10 years later. This is according to Josephus and cited by Gill and Clark, so... That's just a minor point. Don't confuse that with the census that we all hear about at Christmas time when we hear the Christmas story. And so we go to Acts 5, verses 38 and 39. And now, Gamaliel continues, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. So they were persuaded by him. Now, it's interesting, you will not be able to overthrow them. That prediction, that contingent prediction, actually came to pass. They weren't able to stop the Christians. How many is a billion Christians all over the world now? That pathetic little kangaroo court that the Sanhedrin called together tried to stop Christianity in its inception and failed utterly miserably. And where are the rabbinic Jews today? Well, I guess you could say the Orthodox Jews of today are their successors. You can't find enough of them put in a phone booth. So the Sanhedrin got outfoxed. And yes, they were fighting against God. Just like Gamaliel says, you are fighting against God. Well, anyway, Gamaliel's his honor and prestige persuaded the Sanhedrin, and they laid off the apostles. They flogged them and let them loose. We'll see in a little bit. Now, the next question is, did Gamaliel become a Christian? Some have thought so because of this advice here, don't persecute the Christians. But most probably he died a Pharisee. And the reason for this is the great respect shown to him by the Jews upon his death. If he were a Christian, the Jews would not have put all those honors upon him when he died. In fact, John Gill, this is what I was looking for a minute ago, John Gill says a little before his death, he ordered a prayer to be made against the Christians, right before he died. So I think the evidence is that the man did not become a Christian. Now notice this attitude of official neutrality toward Jesus that Gamaliel advocated is not a good policy. It is a, It was a good policy for the Sanhedrin in the aggregate, but individual neutrality is hostility to Christ. If you individually say, well, you know, I'm not against you, Jesus, that's cool, but I'm not going to follow you, you're hostile to Christ. Luke 11:23. 23, 
Anyone who was not with me, Jesus says, is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. And I, many times you run into people, well, yeah, I think Jesus was a good teacher, and wasn't he so nice, And but I don't believe in him. Well, then you're opposed to him. You're his enemy, and you're God's enemy. Acts 5.40, after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, this is the Sanhedrin, they called in the apostles who had been sent out while they listened to Gamaliel's advice, the apostles came back in and were flogged. They ordered them, the Sanhedrin ordered the apostles not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. And they did the same thing in the previous the first hearing before the Sanhedrin, they told them not to speak in the name of Jesus, but this time they flogged them in addition. Why did they do that? Well, and they did that especially when they were afraid of the crowds. Well, the flogging was done inside, so maybe the crowds didn't see that. Of course, they walked out, they probably could see their clothes and ripped to shreds and blood on their back, so, which made the crowds not so happy with the Sanhedrin. So that, that, was, that was a factor mitigating against punishing the disciples with the flogging. However, I suspect that they, the Sanhedrin didn't want to have their authority totally flaunted. This was the apostles' second offense. They'd already been told, Acts 4.18. So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus, and they went out and disobeyed the Sanhedrin, and so they did, the Sanhedrin didn't want to see the authority totally flaunted. So instead of killing them, they at least flogged them. And that, by the way, getting flogged is no easy thing. That's a rough thing. This was the apostles' second offense, and they let the first offense go. They figured they better do something the second time, and things are just going to get out of hand. And as I mentioned earlier, the, cra the crowd's influence is not as strong inside the Sanhedrin. Now, if they'd have whipped them outside where everybody could see, they might have started riot, but they whipped them behind closed doors. Now, flogging, the Jewish penalty was 39 lashes. The Jews, uh, the, the law allowed 40, but the Jews would do 39 just in case they miscounted. They didn't want to break the law, you know, so... This flogging, by the way, completely fulfilled Jesus' words, Matthew 10:17, because people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. Remember, there was not just the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. There were Sanhedrins all, all over Jewish towns, all over Israel. And the Sanhedrins in these synagogues all over Israel were, had uh, judicial authority, and they could try people. We go now to Acts 5, verse 41. Then they, the apostles, went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. They had just been whipped 39 times, their backs all slashed up, and they're rejoicing about it. They were dishonored on behalf of the name because there's nothing more dishonorable than to get flogged. That was reserved for people who had committed very scandalous crimes, and here they were treated like common criminals, and they rejoiced about it. On behalf of the name, of course, that's the name capitalized in my Holman Christian Study Bible. That's the name of Jesus. Now, John Gill says it's God because the name is often used in Jewish writings for God, but I don't think so. I think it's referring to Jesus here. And, of course, when you say the name, that means the person of Jesus and everything about Jesus, the characteristics of Jesus, the personality of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. On behalf of Jesus, they got dishonored. Adam Clark makes the point that this attitude of the apostles compares favorably with Old Testament saints who were persecuted. The Old Testament saints fretted, mourned, sometimes murmured. They possessed their souls in patience. They endured it unhappily, apparently. But the early Christians, they got beat. They went out rejoicing. Boy, they must have been. The effects of Pentecost were just absolutely amazing. Amazing. Verse 42 in Acts chapter 5, every day in the temple complex and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is after they've been told the second time that they need to keep their mouths shut. And the second time they said, we must obey God rather than men. 
and he went out and right on. They kept on preaching right there under the noses of the Sanhedrin in the temple complex, that great temple that was the symbol of Old Testament Israel, the symbol of the Old Testament rabbinic order, which is get, which had killed Jesus already and was getting ready to persecute the Christians. The persecution really broke out in Acts chapter 8. But these apostles, they didn't care. Right there in the belly of the beast, they kept preaching Jesus. Reminds me of the Chinese Christians. Right there in the belly of the communist beast, they preached Jesus all the time, and the gospel spreads like crazy, and the government, stupid, idiotic, communist government, continues to try to stomp it out, and they can't do it. I was talking to a Chinese church leader one time. He says, there are too many potatoes. You can't, you, he says, there are too many potatoes in China now. They can't pick the potatoes out of the garden. What he was referring to is the Christians have gotten so many of them, they can't keep up with them. They try to get the leaders mostly, but they can't. But there's just so many of them now. Every day in the temple complex and in various homes, they continue teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I've mentioned earlier that whenever you see a mention of the, the disciples preaching in the temple complex, people say, see there, the church didn't just meet in homes, they met in the temple. No, it did not. They were evangelizing in the temple now, in various homes, they were also teaching and proclaiming, because you can witness to people in homes. You invite people over to your house and witness to them. The only time you can see them having a church meeting, my friends, was in the homes, not in the temple building. I, I mentioned that because it seems to be a myth, and people keep repeating that over and over again. I think it's because they want to justify their ecclesiastical warehouses that are $300 million in debt, and for which they have to keep dunning the congregation and begging for money all the time so they can pay off the mortgage. Notice also that they met every day. Church didn't meet every day. We know from the examples in Acts, they met on Sunday as a church. On Sunday, Sunday night mostly, they had, usually had to work on Sunday. They didn't have blue laws back then. They had to work on Sunday day, in, on, in, in the day Sunday. But at night they would meet on Sunday. They wouldn't meet every day in the temple complex. Now, you might ask, how did they do that every day if they had to work? It's a thought that just occurred to me. Well, this was probably still during that period when the Jews had just come in for Pentecost, and they stayed there, and they had all their stuff in common, and they and they were living off the proceeds of the of the sales of the real estate that the Christians of Jerusalem had made, giving the proceeds to the apostles so they could feed everybody. That's probably how they were able to keep going like that without having to work. This is kind of a unique time in church history. You notice that the news about Jesus is good news. Good news is gospel is an old English word, I think, that stands for good news. It is good news, boy, when you find out that you don't have to go to hell and that you have to live the crappy life you're living. You can live free from your sin that entangles you and drags you down to the dirt. Yes, sir, that's good news. This every day in the temple complex and various homes, they continue preaching and proclaiming. The gospel reminds one of Acts 2.46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex. Remember, they would meet by agreement by fixed agreement they would go and meet at the beautiful gate right there at solomon's colonnade solomon's porch and then they would start their evangelism and they broke bread from house to house notice the breaking bread that's the lord's supper that was the church meeting that was in the homes house to house whereas the evangelism was, was being done in the temple ladies and gentlemen i'm finished with acts chapter 5 we've gone down to verse 42 and we're finished Next audio, we'll take up chapter 6, a short chapter, verses 1 through 15, with two incidents. First, the seven are chosen to serve, the seven so-called deacons, although they weren't called deacons, to serve the food so the apostles could devote most of their time to teaching. And then we have the tragic arrest and uh, of Stephen, the early evangelist. We'll take that up next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>